When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, the Department of Justice reveals more evidence against Donald Trump. Republicans try to run from their extreme abortion positions. Joe Biden caps off a big few weeks with a primetime speech. And former New Orleans mayor turned White House infrastructure czar Mitch Landrieu stops by to talk about how the president's infrastructure law is being felt in cities all across the country. Then Dan and I brace ourselves for another round. Of take appreciator. I was so I'm so ready for this. Me too. Me too. Um, But first, midterms are coming up, so we're drinking a ton of coffee. I I don't know why I need the midterms for that. I'm drinking coffee all the time anyway. But with crooked coffee, your daily cup can fuel both you and your democracy. (laughs) See how we did that, Dan? See how we did that? You did something there. That's for sure. Yeah, it's something. (laughs) A portion. Love it. Wrote it. A portion of the proceeds from every order of Crooked Coffee go to register her to register and activate millions of women across the country to vote. We got a dark roast and a medium roast. Uh, It's delicious, hot or cold. In fact, we just launched the Cold Brewer, which is a fun and easy way to make great cold brew at home. And it sold out in two weeks because you guys are loving it. You're loving the cold brew. Sold out. Can't get it. But. You can sign up to be the first to know when it's restocked at crooked.com slash coffee. And while you're there, you can grab a bag of coffee or two, sign up for a monthly subscription to save 25% off your coffee delivery every month. Also, check out this week's America Dissected, where Abdul speaks with Atlantic staff writer Amanda Mull about which sunscreens are truly protecting your skin and why Americans have fewer good, safe sunscreen solutions compared to people in other countries. I did not know that. Uh, You can learn more about this and listen to new episodes of America Dissected each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get to the news. Dan, you've talked about how Donald Trump's uh, legal strategy has been to flood the zone with shit, and now Donald Trump is drowning in it. (laughs) (laughs) The 2024 GOP frontrunner, thought he could delay the Mar-a-Lago investigation by finding a Trump judge who would grant an independent review of the classified secrets he stole from the government. But his request triggered an incredibly damning 36-page response from the Department of Justice that laid out even more evidence of criminality. (laughs) He's such an idiot. All right, so so Trump apparently had three classified documents in his desk and more than 100 in his residence, uh, some at the most highly classified levels. And that was twice as many documents as Trump's lawyers turned over when they swore an oath that he didn't have any more. The government also has evidence that documents were likely concealed and removed from the Mar-a-Lago storage room after the Justice Department had subpoenaed them uh, and wrote in the filing that, quote, Efforts were likely taken to obstruct the government's investigation. 
Uh, even Fox and Friends' uh, own Walter Cronkite uh, has some questions about this. Let's listen. Well, ultimately, it comes down to why did he have all that secret stuff uh, at Mar-a-Lago? You know, I know he, his team has said that they declassified it, but that's news to the agencies that those mm-hmm. documents belong to. And, and Governor, he, he, had, uh, he had apparently three classified documents in his desk. And then the stuff, as Brian detailed on the floor, it shows uh, five yellow folders marked top secret and another one with that says secret SCI, which means sensitive compartmentalized information. Those are the biggest secrets in the world. Why would he, and apparently the president, former president went through them in January. Why wouldn't he say, oh, you know what? I really need to turn that back over. Why did he have all that stuff at Mar-a-Lago? Never said this before, but good question, Steve Ducey. <laughs> I mean, uh, he was he was interviewing Governor Christy Noem of uh, South Dakota, uh, but you don't hear her answer because she just uh, ran away from the studio. <laughs> I mean, if you actually watch the video of it, she is trying hard not to laugh. Like it's so uncomfortable. She has this like weird shit eating grin on her face because she knows this is a ridiculous question to which she can only give a ridiculous answer. But that is part of her job as a Republican governor is to answer give ridiculous answers to ridiculous questions about Donald Trump. That's the gig. That is the gig. So what did you think of all this? What were your reactions to the uh, DOJ's latest court filing? Donald Trump and his lawyers are just walking through a field looking for rakes to step on. This entire (laughs) special master thing is stupid and fake. It could potentially delay the investigation or charges, but ultimately it has nothing to do with the underlying already proven multiple times charged that he took classified documents and then hid them from the government. Like it is not not only not only proven at this point, Dan admitted (laughs) he's out there truthing up a storm uh, about how he had the documents. (laughs) Yeah, it's just it is like this was so unnecessary. And it's like he doesn't have real attorneys. His real attorneys are, I mean, are not trying to win a legal case. They are trying to take press releases truths and put them into legal motions. And then you have real skilled lawyers on the other side making a case. And this was such an unforced error from Trump's team because Trump was having, I would say, a modicum of success in the public arena, just spreading disinformation, flooding the zone with shit, as we would say, about all the various reasons that what he did was not illegal or what, or it was a raid or all these other things. And then by filing this unnecessary, not particularly important special master motion, what happened was it gave the government an opportunity to lay out in explicit detail exactly what Trump did wrong. And he it, it makes it very clear that he is, as you would as you said, very vividly, I think drowning in shit right now yeah it's a it's a it's a he flood the zone with shit and he is the flood victim at this point (laughs) (laughs) i also i mean like we learned a couple things from the it's so funny every time trump tries to make one of these moves we just learn more damning evidence from doj and in this uh in this filing they wrote the former president's counsel explicitly prohibited government personnel from opening or looking inside any of the boxes that remained in the storage room, giving no opportunity for the government to confirm that no documents with classification markings remained. So there goes his whole argument, one of many stupid arguments, that they were cooperating the entire time. It's pretty clear that they were not cooperating. Not only were they not cooperating, but they were lying to the government. 
and hiding things and attesting things that were false in like written affidavits <laughs> or like in written statements that now is going to not only get Trump in trouble, but it sounds like his two lawyers. Like, I feel like the the TV lawyers who uh, swore to the feds that there weren't any more classified documents might be in some trouble, huh? I am shocked that the former OAN anchor who was on television spreading dangerous and malicious conspiracy theories turned out to be the same person who had lied to the FBI on behalf of Donald Trump. You know, it's just, it's like, I am shocked because usually you would trust the integrity of these OAN anchors to stand by the truth because that's why they got into journalism to begin with is the truth. I mean, this does what I think this is another thing that another question that appears to be answered by this filing is I think you and I have speculated, Melissa and I speculated a little bit last week is did these attorneys lie to the FBI or did Donald Trump lie to his attorneys? And mm. it appears from what the FBI is saying that they believe based not just on <clears throat> what they found, but also what they may have seen on the surveillance tapes or from other witnesses mm. is that the attorneys seem to have known that Donald Trump was not turning over all of the documents, which it was a major tell that they were like, don't look in this box. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm looking for classified documents. Uh, the president owes us classified documents. Can you please give us the classified documents? Yeah, look anywhere you want except right there in the box. Mark. Do, do not, not look. Do not look under my bed. Secret stuff in here. <laughs> yes. um, I see uh, Trump's Trump's still truthing that this is all fine because he um, he's saying he declassified the secret documents that he lied about hiding in his basement. He's still going with this. Uh, you think that's any more likely to work now? This is pretty interesting, I think, because this has been his core defense, but it could not be more flimsy. First, he is a president who was served by a staff known for their fealty to Trump and their willingness to lie for him, and not a single one of them has come out to even tell that lie publicly, even just in the court of public, in the, just in the public arena. Second, in the photo that was included in the filing, all of the classified cover pages are still on the documents. But had they been declassified, it's likely they would no longer have the pages that said, don't read past this page if you, are not, if you do not have the qualification for it. Third, in none of Trump's legal filings has he ever has any of his attorneys ever made that assertion because to do so would be a crime because it is not true. And then finally, and I think most interestingly and most humorously, in Trump's response filing last night to the one we were just referring to, his team said that the special master would need to have top secret clearance to read <laughs> the documents. See. It's just <laughs> <laughs> that's the best part. Yeah. <laughs> it is the best part. Not only in the fi- in the response to the filing did they not say the declassification defense, which you of course would if you believed it to be true, but you wouldn't want to if you're a lawyer putting it in a, in a legal document <laughs> because you could face consequences as a lawyer. But yeah, they said the special master would need a high classification, <laughs> which is so funny. Which is like if the Trump judge at this point grants a special master, then like. Yeah, they're going to have to have the highest clearance and then fine, it'll delay it, but it's not going to help them at all because they're going to find the same thing that the fucking government just found. The other really funny thing is um, you talked about the picture. (laughs) So, yeah, so there's the picture of all the classified documents, the highly classified documents. Uh, And then then the the Department of Justice has the picture and has them all laying out on on a floor. And 
Trump truth to response that he really he really thought that he got them on this one. But he also uh, he talked about this in an interview that he did uh, earlier this morning. Uh, let's take a listen. A lot of people think that when you walk into my office, I have confidential documents or whatever it may be, all declassified. But I had confidential documents spread out all over my far floor. And uh, like a slob, like I'm sitting there reading these documents all day long or somebody else would be. It's so it's so dishonest when you look at it. And so people were, were concerned because they said, gee, you know, that's a strange scene. You look at the floor and you see documents, right? They have cover sheets of documents. No, they put them there, John. You can accuse me of stealing state secrets. You can accuse me of hiding them in my beach house. You can accuse me of lying to the federal government and obstructing investigation, but don't you dare accuse me of being a slob. <laughs> and no one, and I mean no one, thought you were reading these documents. Not a person thought that. There's no, like no like no one has even ever asserted in all of this that one of the reasons why he wanted them was because he was so interested in the substance. He was so just had such an attachment to the information. He couldn't be separate from his books. The other thing it's like so f- it's like on the Tuesday pod when when Tommy surmised that you know some presidents take notes about the classified briefings they get and like maybe Trump was taking notes I was like I don't think there I don't think there's a danger that Trump was taking any notes about <laughs> yes. anything you know, the guy doesn't read he's not taking notes he knows how to use his fucking DVR that's about it yeah. <laughs> to the extent there is writing in Donald Trump's hand on those pages it is just like hearts to himself (laughs) it's like one of those notes to janine pirro do you love me like i'm like very weird shit but the other thing that is funny is like when you boil down that truth slash that interview his argument is the fbi took the documents the highly secret classified documents out of my unlocked desk drawer and put them on the floor (laughs) to make me look bad it's like Dude, that's not what's making you look bad. Stealing the secrets is what's making you look bad. No one's out there being like, if the guy had only had those in cartons, in boxes, it would be fine. But he's just, he's, it's really, I was actually sort of disappointed by his response because he's just, it's very lazy right now. He's not even mounting a good, a good defense. I think the other thing this does, by the way, is like the more, the more the the Justice Department releases of their evidence here and why they think that Trump may have committed a crime, I think the more difficult it is for them to not bring charges, honestly. Like, I don't, I mean, I. how do you decide at this point that this is what he has done is not, is not criminal or does not warrant an indictment. I know we're not lawyers, but it's it's pretty pretty cut and dry at this point. Yeah, what is interesting? I'm gonna put on my fake lawyer hat for a second here. Thank which God, is, thank <laughs> God, because I left mine in the other room. <laughs> but you know what? Send that idea to the merch department. They <laughs> 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 go right next to the fueling our democracy coffee shirts. <laughs> 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 so is. One way in which if, you know, and you and Tommy talked about this, Melissa and I talked about as well, like, was the FBI just trying to get the documents back because they thought it was a danger that these documents were in this unsecured place? I mean, we just had this report of a foreign national pretending to be a member of the Rothschild family and just wandering aimlessly through (laughs) Mar-a-Lago. Or is there a possible criminal case here? And the Presidential Records Act 
is a law. It is a law that Trump has clearly violated. Like it is not even that like that is obvious. Presidential Records Act, for reasons I can't really explain, does not have an enforcement mechanism in it. Right. So I think you it's like the Hatch Act. You just get you just get a stern letter from an unnamed government bureaucrat. I don't know. But the the DOJ has never in a single filing cited the Presidential Records Act as a reason that they needed the search warrant. They wanted to get the documents the, as the basis of the investigation. It has always been the Espionage Act. This is <laughs> a law that does have criminal penalties. And this is what I think a lot of uh, the, the Trump people, a lot of other people are just missing. And Charlie Savage at the New York Times, who's a fantastic reporter on all these issues, laid this out many weeks ago, which is like the whole classification debate here is like a red herring <laughs> or it just doesn't. It's, it's sort of superfluous because the Espionage Act is a law passed by Congress that says that you cannot be holding national defense secrets, whether they're classified or not. If there are if the government has these national defense secrets and you are mishandling them, that is breaking the law. So that doesn't have to do with the Presidential Records Act. That doesn't have to do with whether you're president. You can declassify some shit. That is a law passed by Congress, which is why it appeared in the search warrant. Also, he obstructed. There's an obstruction charge there, and I don't know how they get around not not bringing the obstruction charge when it's when they keep saying in all these filings, yeah, we have evidence that there was obstruction, unless it's just like the lawyers just get charged with obstruction and Trump gets off. I don't know. I don't know. It's pretty. It's wild. Um, I know we're doing take appreciators in a bit, but I just wanted to check back in uh, and take your temperature on David Brooks's take from a few weeks ago that we talked about, titled uh, "Did the FBI just reelect Donald Trump." How are we feeling about that one? So we feel feeling pretty good about our original take on that take. Well, I have a question for you to help us okay. get to the answer to this. Sure. Do federal penitentiaries have a student government-like system? <laughs> like, could Trump run for president of the B Block? Like, is that he possible? Can he can run for president from jail. He can run for president of the United States from jail. I looked this up uh, months ago. It was terrifying. <laughs> that is such a funny sentence. Which is... Someone, some legal nerd, a couple legal nerds wrote about this somewhere because we, we we talked about this. It was like a year ago, maybe at this point. And yeah, he can even he can even probably run for president from jail. That's actually, I would actually like to talk to a legal expert about that. Like, I think you luckily have to... we have luckily we have three of them on a on a cricket podcast. It's like a huge that, missed opportunity. Very popular podcast. Since I co-hosted this podcast with one of them last week, is I think in some state like. In New Hampshire, you might have to file for president in person. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's interesting. That's yeah. A, I don't know whether you so can designate be, a proxy, but. Yeah. All kinds of legal questions. Right? Uh, Melissa, Kate, Leah, we would love to hear your take on this <laughs> sometime soon. We're just going to talk to you through this podcast. Um, okay. So, yeah, I don't think that uh, I don't think that Brooks's uh, take was uh, I don't think it was right on the money there. <laughs> I don't think this is helping Trump in any way. Are you seeing but are you seeing any signs that this investigation is causing Republican politicians to rethink their undying loyalty to a twice impeached one-term president who's the target of multiple criminal investigations? No, but it is and this is a very enjoyable circumstance making their defenses of him much more uncomfortable. It yeah. gets it's like every day Trump through some sort of truth or, you know, message communicated through his sock puppets like Sean Hannity puts these Republicans out on a very thin branch. And then the Department of Justice and the reality just saw it off. Right. It is. It keeps happening. Yeah. And again, so it gets harder. And you, I think they're going to try to I imagine that other than like the most 
fatuous MAGA fabulists, this would be most are going to try to avoid talking about this as much as humanly possible. Yeah. You don't think they're going to be hitting the campaign trail with this as a message? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't seem like the idea that the, that the quote unquote raid has is going to be the rallying cry for the MAGA base. I don't think that's going to be what people are going to take to the voters this fall. In fact, uh, you know, not only is uh, Donald Trump uh, a, a big problem for the Republican Party right now, their extreme position on abortion isn't uh, sitting so well with voters either. So Republican politicians are doing what they do best, uh, which is lying about it. At least nine Republican candidates have removed or watered down references to Donald Trump or abortion from their campaign sites. So we're already seeing them. They're walking a little away from Donald Trump. And they don't, they don't be, they don't, they're not touting their, uh, their embrace of Donald Trump on their campaign sites. And also they're trying to remove some of their extreme positions on abortion. Uh, Blake Masters who called abortion demonic, removed language that he's 100% pro-life and supports a federal fetal personhood law. Uh, And he has walked back his call for a national abortion ban. Dr. Oz, uh, the TV doctor who apparently doesn't know how TV works, uh, has tried to waffle on abortion but leaked audio from a campaign event in May. Has complicated that strategy. Let's listen. I do believe life starts at conception. And I've said that multiple times. Your heart starts beating at around nine weeks. So I was concerned that if legislators picked a time frame that's not medically accurate, it would invalidate the law. But also, if life starts at conception, why do you care what age the heart starts beating at? It's you know, it's not risk to murder if you were to, to, to terminate a child, whether the heart's beating or not. Abortion is murder under any circumstances. That's what Dr. Oz thinks. <laughs> Even though he is now trying to waffle on that position. So um, do you think this strategy could work? And... Uh, how can Democrats make sure it doesn't? Well, it definitely can work. There, it absolutely can. I mean, if we think back to 2018, you think of those Orwellian videos of Republican candidates staring into the camera and saying that they always opposed efforts to take away protections for people with pre-existing conditions. Some of those people lost, but a lot of them won. And you, it absolutely can work. We know that disinformation works. We know we live in a world where 70% of Republicans believe that the election was stolen. And the way we can fight back against it is we have to keep the pressure on. Like ultimately, politics is a battle for attention. It's a battle for garnering attention, but it's also a battle for focusing attention. And we have this is and right now, atten- the public's mind is focused on abortion. Republican extremism embodied by the Supreme Court taking away constitutional right, and then the Republicans pushing these extreme positions. That could fade to the background over the course of the next 80-some days where we have left, unless we keep the heat on. So I've been very, I think, pleasantly surprised at how intense Democratic messaging and advertising efforts have been on abortion. I looked at some of those ads with Melissa Murray for an episode of Campaign Experts React this week. They're spending a ton of money on the number one issue in all Democratic advertising, but we have to keep that up because if abortion fades to the background, the ability to flood the zone with shit, the real theme of this episode, could be more successful than it is right now. Yeah, and I do think the the way to make sure that strategy works is like Blake Masters scrubbing his website like – Hey man, you know how the internet works. I mean, look, does he have? He look, he's not really familiar with Silicon Valley or internet. <laughs> doesn't really know anyone who might be bankrolling his campaign, who's Mark Zuckerberg's mentor. So it's understandable that Blake Masters wouldn't know. 
Well, it's, it's like I think it's pretty easy for voters to understand, especially if you put a lot of money behind ads. That like here was the website when he was running in the primary, and here's the website now, and he scrubbed it and it changed, and he's trying to run away from his position. And here's a recording of him calling abortion demonic, and here's the recording of Doctor Oz calling abortion murder. Like I think some of them can try to run away from it, but the the people who have said things in the past where you can see the writing on their websites uh, in past versions, if you put enough money behind those ads and you put that in front of voters, that's going to be really hard to walk away from. And then they're not just extremists, they're lying extremists, which is, you know, uh, the truth. Yeah, I think one part of this that's important, and it's like a minor nuance to the messaging is focus more on the extremism than the lying or the hypocrisy. Because Because people expect politicians to be liars anyway. Yes, exactly. And just like, (laughs) that's it. It doesn't like, oh, he tried to trick us. Well, like, no shit, he tried to trick us. He's kind of a disgusting human being. But the point is, what was he trying to trick us about? Yeah. It's sort of like our uh, tendency to, to to go after hypocrisy arguments. Like, yes. Oh, you're saying this about us, but you said this. That that doesn't work. You voted us. against the Inflation Reduction Act and you went to a ribbon cutting? Out of Congress. We, a, we all, yeah, we, <laughs> we all tried that, that on Twitter. That did We're not, all fans of that on Twitter. Work. But guess because voters think that politicians of, of all parties are all sort of cynical, lying assholes is the problem. Um, but they don't like extremists, that's for sure. Um, all right. So one person who's been having a pretty good couple weeks is President Joe Biden. We haven't been able to say that in a while. Fucking love it. Uh, his approval ratings have climbed from the high 30s to the low to mid 40s. So, you know, whatever. We'll take it. We'll take it. Um, swing state Democrats are starting to campaign with him again. Like to see that. Uh, and tonight, Thursday night, uh, he will be delivering a primetime speech in Philadelphia that the White House says will focus on the continued battle for the soul of the nation. So this is the latest in a string of speeches and remarks from Biden over the last few weeks, including a fundraiser where he called Trumpism semi-fascism, uh, which caused some some pearl clutching among various supporters of the guy who just uh, demanded that he be reinstated as president. <laughs> <laughs> so most of our listeners will probably hear this episode after Biden's speech, but talk about what you think the White House hopes to get out of this and what their thinking is on this uh, soul of the nation message, which of course was Biden's message in his presidential campaign and appears to be the message uh, they want to have in the midterms as well. I think there's been a lot of obsession in the run-up to this speech about the term soul of the nation. What is he going to talk about? And I think we have to think, we have to kind of not focus on those words so much, right? You like the amount of times that you and I had conversations over the years where you were working on this big speech, but we have to go pitch it to people and we have to come up with some sort of quasi interesting, but not particularly revealing uh, paragraph to put out there, which drove you insane oh, always. It drove it made me you insane. So bad. It drove me insane. I'm sorry for all the times I got mad at you when you asked me to do that. And that I think that's what's <laughs> happening here, right? I imagine the speech is not done. I think they know what they want to say. But Battle for the Soul of the Nation is shorthand for Biden's larger argument. And what we've seen is a transition in that argument since 2020, in particular the last few months here, which is in the early days, it was largely about unity. And now I think it's transitioned to a focus on the fact that unity is impossible when we have a faction that is trying to divide America for partisan and political gain. And so focusing on that part of it, what I want to hope the White House, I think what they want to do is frame the midterms, sort of send up a bat signal to the entire party of this is a message we can all run on, whether you are running in a super liberal district or a purple district, you will, you will, 
alter it to fit your district or your state. But this is the larger story we should be telling as a party and to build the, the momentum that he has had in recent weeks. So I think doing this and doing it in prime time is good because we're talking about it, right? If it's just a speech at a rally at three o'clock on a Tuesday, it wouldn't get this sort of attention. Uh, you know, we might talk about it, but the rest of the press probably wouldn't. But this has been the subject of a lot of conversation. And it is yet yet another sign, I think, that I see we've seen a lot from the Biden White House over the summer that they are really sort of upping their game in terms of grabbing sort of the microphone and using it to communicate to the public and to drown out a lot of the bullshit and conversation that's been out there. I have one more thought on the on the sort of unity piece around the uh, soul of the nation um, that I've been thinking about, and that I think uh, I think the Biden White House has been really smart on this. We talked about sort of the ultra MAGA branding or the extreme MAGA branding um, that the White House unveiled a couple months ago, and some people were making fun of it, some people weren't sure, but it was the result of a lot of polling, a lot of research, a lot of testing. And so Biden the other day, the, obviously, obviously the semi-fascism uh, comments got all the attention. But in that same speech, he said, MAGA Republicans refuse to accept the will of the people, embrace political violence, and don't believe in democracy. And then in like the next sentence, he reached out to Democrats, independents, and mainstream Republicans. So, you know, we get a piece in the New York Times today, of course, uh, the preview piece of this speech. Um, that, that from by Michael Shear that, that that starts. President Biden likes to say there is nothing America cannot do if the country is united and its rival parties are willing to work together. But with just two months until the midterm elections, Mr. Biden is purposely spending less time hailing the virtues of compromise and more time calling out dangers to democracy, using some of the sharpest and most combative language of his presidency. Obviously designed <sighs> to trigger us as most uh, <laughs> as most New York Times analysis pieces are, but I would argue that. There is no conflict between Joe Biden calling out the extremism of MAGA Republicans and Joe Biden also saying, I want to bring Democrats, independents and mainstream Republicans together in this country. And I actually think that is the smart and right message. I think, again, you hear Joe Biden calling out to Republicans on Twitter and saying, you know, come vote for us and trying to appeal to Republicans and normal Republicans. And on Twitter, everyone gets annoyed about that, right? Why is he trying to reach out to Republicans? But I think trying to cleave extreme MAGA Republicans from mainstream Republican voters who we know have been leaving the party over the last several elections, people who maybe voted for Mitt Romney and then decided to vote for Hillary Clinton, or then people who voted for Trump the first time and then voted for Joe Biden in 2020. Like we know there is a group of people out there, mostly college educated voters in a lot of suburban places who are like, I might have been part of the Republican Party once, but they have become too extreme and I'm done with them. And I think it's smart for Joe Biden to try to reach out to those voters while also making it very clear that MAGA Republicans, supporters of Donald Trump, Donald Trump and especially Republican politicians that are supportive of Donald Trump, which is like 95 percent of Republican politicians in this country are a threat to democracy don't believe in uh, holding up election results, right? Like, I, so I, I don't, they're going to try to, the press. Oh, and gotcha. Repub gotcha, Joe the, Biden. The, the yeah, the press and Republicans are going to try to do this gotcha shit and going to try to say, you know, oh, he's he's talking about unity, but he's attacking Republicans in this language. And similarly, I think there's some liberals who are going to be like, why is Joe Biden reaching out to Republicans? But I think this is the right strategy if you want to create a pro-democracy coalition in this country that can beat Donald Trump and MAGA Republicans.
if you want to heal the soul of the nation, you have to cut out the cancer. And this yes. Republican Party is a dangerous, rapidly metastasizing cancer on the body politic. And I think you have to separate Republican politicians and the extreme MAGA supporters that that show up at the rallies and that have, you know, embraced violence from other people who sometimes vote Republican and sometimes don't and are thinking about leaving the party or have left the party or haven't voted Republican in a while. You just have to do that because it's it not just because it's the right thing to do, because it's fucking math. <laughs> like we cannot we cannot win without those voters. We in 2020, it was the biggest turnout in history on both sides. And we still only won by like, uh, you know, 40,000 votes. <laughs> so we actually need all of those voters just as much as we need our base voters as well. I mean, there has always been a right wing extremist faction in this country. The John Birchers, the right wing militias of the 90s, they've all they've always been there. And at times they've gained enough power that the Republican establishment has felt the need to accommodate them in some ways. The Tea Party is an example of the precursor to the MAGA movement. What is different now is that because we are in this very dangerous moment where the structural biases of the Electoral College and the Senate give that right wing extremist minority a massively disproportionate share of the power. And then when you amplify that with a right wing media apparatus like Fox News and a social media platform like Facebook, which which communicates that message, that right wing message at hyperspeed at scale, the right wing faction is now not just a faction to be accommodated. It is the establishment of the public party. That is the leadership. They are the ones in charge. And what is interesting and notable about this moment, I think, is what Biden has tried to do and he's going to try to do tonight is recognize that while this minority is growing in power, it is not growing in numbers. Yeah. We actually are living in a world where that extremist minority is shrinking as a percentage of the population. There is a pro-democracy, pro-truth, anti-MAGA majority in this country. And the way to defeat fascism or semi-fascism is to appeal to the to the majority who disagree with that. And that's going to include Republicans, it's including independents, and you know it's going to really focus on people who don't engage in our political process. And I do think right. one key to this who are, speech- Who are, by the way, targets for either side. Yes. The people who don't engage in political process. They are, the the the, the MAGA movement is reaching out to them too. So yes. they are up for grabs. They may actually, in some cases, profile as people who could end up being Republicans geographically and demographically. And we have to be very yep. aware of that. But it, I think one thing is important here is to explain to the public the, the real world specific dangers of this extremist minority. And this is where the Supreme Court's yeah. decision in Dobbs, the banning of books, the promises to ban uh, marriage, to outlaw marriage equality, to stop people from getting access to IVF or contraception, all those things is that this is where the war on freedom matters because it's not a war on a political system that has never worked for large portions of this country. It is a war on people's lives. And this is what the danger is. And when whenever these moments have failed, whether it's the Tea Party or the Reagan revolution in the 90s, it is when the real world consequences to the majority of the opinions of this minority become manifestly clear. And, and I would add to that too, and the embrace of political violence, right? Which I think, you know, I think uh, when a lot of people look at January 6th, you know, we've talked a lot about like the fake electors and the and the and the uh, the plot to overturn the election, which was fucking horrible. But like most Americans look at that and they're like, yeah, there's a right wing in this country that has now embraced political violence. And I don't like that. That's a real problem. 
Okay, when we come back, I will talk to former mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, about uh, implementing Joe Biden's infrastructure plan. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, Mm -hmm. more time for you. I, uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday. Mm -hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing in therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added okay, therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking- that's going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's certainly going to make things better for the team. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this... This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. Joining us now, the former mayor of New Orleans, currently a special advisor to President Biden, who's in charge of implementing the infrastructure law. Mitch Landrieu, welcome back to the pod. Oh, it's great to be here. I miss you guys. I know. Last time we saw you, I think, was in New Orleans, which is a... Yeah, uh, at the Orpheum Theater, it was, a, it was a throwdown. Yeah, much more much more fun location than this interview. <laughs> I told... Who was it? I told I said, don't mention the Saints, and they mentioned them in the whole It was audience. Love It. It was Love It. And oh, he was Lovett. almost... I told Love It. I said, don't do it. Don't do it. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. I said, okay, well, just go ahead then. He was also mo- he, he, was, dog- he was almost mobbed on the spot. That was almost he the end of the He started out the Saints, and he almost didn't make it out of his city. <laughs> I know, and none of us were defending him. We almost just left him to the uh, left him to the mouth. I love it. Um, all right, so the money from the infrastructure law is, is, is starting to flow now. It's really starting to flow now. There are over 5,300 projects getting underway all over the country. What do you want people to know about these projects, especially people whose eyes might glaze over uh, the second they hear the word infrastructure. Well, you know, you don't use that word. It's about fixing. Ro- everybody knows potholes are a pain in the butt. Yep. Everybody knows the traffic really stinks. Everybody knows what it's like to not be able to pick their kids up or to get to work on time or to get to wherever you're going. Um, so when we're thinking about rebuilding the roads and bridges and airports and ports and the waterways, when we're talking about making sure everybody has access to high-speed internet. We're talking about clean air, 
safe water, which is a major problem that we're having right now in, in Jackson, Mississippi, just to, to make the case that I know that we'll talk about in a minute, um, or to build a whole new clean energy economy, which essentially means um, that we're really rushing into a new way of, uh, of traveling and the things that we do. People can kind of see it in their real lives. It's a little bit hard because it's a it's a long-term piece, but when this stuff starts coming out of the ground and you start seeing it, you go like, oh man, that's crazy. I mean, things are changing pretty fast and for the better. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that because I um, a few weeks ago, I did a focus group of uh, black voters in Atlanta for another podcast I'm working on. And when I asked which issues are most important to them, a lot of people voluntarily brought up as one of the top issues, uh, roads are all broken, too many potholes, no good public transportation around here. And then they said, you know, we heard Joe Biden was going to do something to fix this, but nothing seems fixed. Uh, and they felt let down. Obviously, like, like, how do you wrap your arms around the communication challenge of talking about projects that will, in some cases, take years to complete? Yeah, you know, that's a real challenge. There's no there's no way to get around that. These are long term projects. I mean, it's not like um, with with American Rescue Plan funds or the or the uh, Recovery Act where you're just putting money in people's pocketbook that they see the next day. You're actually building something and it takes a while to build something. As a consequence, it takes a while to see the consequences of it. So impatience is is an expected uh, proposition on this particular thing. However, you know, when it's, when it finally starts coming out of the ground and you go, man, okay, that's what they were talking about. You'll know that. I don't, I, I think it's really kind of an unrealistic expectation that nine months after the bill was passed, that a bridge was going to be built. Right. But we live in a political world, right? And so when Putin is invading the Ukraine and we're having all this other stuff going on, people are thinking about that. Um, and they're not necessarily thinking about the road that's getting fixed. But you will, you will begin to see, if you haven't already, with 5,300 projects coming out of the ground, the real consequence. On top of that, let me give you just an example of real life stuff. 10 million people have been connected to the internet that haven't been connected before through the Affordable Connectivity Program. So this stuff will move out over time. Now, in political years, everybody's got to do something next month. Right. But infrastructure is not in political years. It's about laying a foundation for the future that I think is going to yield great benefit. And the president is completely comfortable with doing um, what is right um, and making sure that we go fast, but we also build the foundation that actually brings the country together in the future. When I was in the uh, Obama administration, I always thought we should have been more explicit in uh, taking credit for the Recovery Act infrastructure project. That's true. We had signs up, but I always so that they uh, should have had a big picture of Obama, like the you know, get the Shepherd Ferry <laughs> poster up there. Um, but I'm not sure what the legal constraints are. Like, wh what are you guys doing about that? Yeah, well, look, first of all, you know, we hear this all the time about who did what wrong and how everybody could have done it better. And right, right. All this stuff. And I think even President Obama would say, look, we probably could have, you know, tagged that a little bit more. I'm a mayor. If you build a project in, in the city where you are, there's a construction sign that goes up and says brought to you by the following administration. Um, You'll actually see that on these projects. The, the, it, it will say brought to you by the bipartisan infrastructure law, President Joseph R. Biden, or something like that. So the public can see it, but be that as it may, this is really um, not not so much about taking credit, although it's important for the country to know how this got done, mm -hmm. so that they want to do it again, they can replicate actually what happened. That's why it's important. It's also important for accountability purposes. And on top of that, I'm sure, although you know, people who are who are running for or against this will talk about it during the campaign, so it'll get a little bit higher visibility you know, as it breaks through some of these other critical day-to-day -day issues people are concerned about. And as as bridges start coming up, 
and new rail cars start, you know, showing themselves, people will go, oh, wow, that's what they were talking about. Yeah. Um, but there'll be some frustration because it takes time to build stuff. So it's just part of the game. You mentioned uh, Jackson, Mississippi, which is front page news right now. Community of 150,000 people, 80 percent are black. They're without running water right now in a 90 plus degree heat. Storm wiped out their water treatment pumps last week. How, how is the uh, Biden administration helping right now and also helping to fix their infrastructure long term? Well, first of all, this is a perfect example of why the infrastructure law was needed. We have massive amounts of deferred maintenance across the country in city properties, state properties, and federal properties, which is one of the reasons why the president thought it was important to pass this bill. So we'll work that that is just a long-term project. As it relates to Jackson, um, which is not unlike situations in my city, like New Orleans or in Flint, Michigan, or other places that have challenged water systems, especially in predominantly um, black cities, you have the, these kinds of events that are catastrophic in nature. The president has spoken uh, to the mayor. He's spoken to the congressman from that district. Our administration has been in touch with the governor's office. FEMA directors heading down there tomorrow. We expect to have a team of people working hand in glove every day with the mayor and the governor for the short term, medium and long term. The most important thing right now is to make sure that safety measures are taking, that, that people have access to water. And we're working with the mayor's office and the congressman to make sure that we can do our part in that. Remember, though, that money has been sent to the state and to the city and that this has been a challenge, not just this past weekend, but for some time. And this is one of the reasons why the infrastructure bill is so critically important so that we, at least from the federal level, have the resources necessary to partner with the city, partner with the state to make sure that everybody has access to safe drinking water. Your job is to obviously work with governors and elected officials of both parties on these projects. Um, and I know there's been some tension with Republican governors wanting to use the money to build more highways or do other things that don't align with the administration's environmental and climate change goals. How, how are you handling that? Yeah, look, let me, a couple of things. First of all, the president said to me, you know, when I was vice president, I was pretty good at running the Recovery Act. And I said, yes, sir, you are. And uh, and he said, I want you to stay in touch with the mayors and the governor. So I have called every governor in the country and spoken either to them or their chief of staff. I've asked them on the behalf of the president to appoint an infrastructure coordinator, which all of them have done, including the heads of all the territories. I've talked to hundreds of mayors and we are I am clear about this on behalf of the president that you can't do this without the federal government, the state government and the local governments working together now. Um, we live in a political world and there's going to be some tension. Not everybody's going to agree on everything, but. I haven't been part of any disagreement that has really troubled me. I mean, that's outside of the bounds. For example, you know, the governor of North Dakota or South Dakota may say, listen, um, you know what works in New York City or works in Atlanta may not work here. So let's work together. And by the way, you can't tell me exactly what to do. I'm the governor. I have some roles. And we go, yeah. And we, for the most part, have, have worked it out. I haven't really come across a situation where it's become impenetrable yet. Um, and one of the reasons is that we're constantly staying in touch. Now, listen, I'm not naive. We live in a political world. But for the most part, everybody likes investment in infrastructure. And guess what? Every Republican that voted against this, as as the speaker said, they voted no, but they want the dough. Yeah. And so when you when you're in the execution mode of this thing, it becomes very non-political. And you just got to get the street built. You got to get the pothole filled. As I like to say, there's no Republican or Democratic way to fill a pothole. Just fill the damn pothole. So we want to go fast, but here's the thing. We also want to build well. So it's critically important that we think about equity, that we think about inclusion, that we're not building highways that split historically African-American you know, communities apart. As a matter of fact, 
We use money to reconnect them. That when we're thinking about water, that we actually don't just go to certain parts of the country, go to everywhere. I was in Lowndes County, Alabama the other day, and it may you know, surprise people in this country that not every American citizen has uh, indoor plumbing, mm-hmm. that there's actually raw sewage that are running out of millions of homes. Catherine Flowers, who's been leading this effort in Lowndes County, uh, along with Congress uh, men and women, have been talking about this. So there's investments to make sure that people just have access to clean water, the investment in lead pipes in African-American communities to, to, to clean out lead pipes so that, so that kids are not drinking dirty water. There's billions of dollars to replace those as well. And there's um, a lot of money on the environmental cleanup side of cleaning up brownfield sites, cleaning up orphan wells, cleaning up abandoned mine lands, cleaning up Superfund sites, and then investing in the restoration of Great Lakes all across the country. It's a massive investment in improving the lives of Americans. And then finally, just on this clean energy economy piece, they're going to blow the roof off right now. And you see the private sector starting to respond in a really dramatic way to the market signals that we're sending about how we're going to electrify the economy. So fortifying the energy grid, making sure that we have new sources of energy. And all of a sudden, you've got Ford, GM, Siemens, Tritium. Today, there's an announcement, another $2 billion announcement of bringing manufacturing back to the United States of America, producing high-paying union jobs and rebuilding communities across the country. So we're well on our way. This is a long slog. We're pushing a rock uphill right now, but we're absolutely going to get there and the country is going to be better for it. You're working with these Republican governors. This was a bipartisan bill. As you said, infrastructure is is an issue where a lot of both parties can come together. Everyone likes roads and bridges in their uh, in their state and district. President is also given a speech tonight. It's going to echo a lot of what he said the last few weeks, uh, which is that the, you know, ultra mega Republicans are a threat to our democracy. What do you think about that? Well, I think what the first of all, I don't want to get ahead of the president's speech tonight, but I have heard him speak on this many times. And what he what I what I believe he's going to try to communicate to the country is that America is a very unique and exceptional place. And we're the only place that has lasted this long based on a simple idea that you all come to the table of democracy as equals Um, and that we are democratic in the sense that. Um, everybody gets a choice. Everybody gets a chance to say what they need to say. And when we disagree, we try to do it in agreeable fashion, even though we can be passionate about it. But you got to stay within the bounds of the Constitution. And historically, there have been uh, a small number of Americans that have fallen outside of those bounds. And I think it's his impression that there is a good group of people that now call themselves MAGA Republicans that are outside of that. Now, he's not talking about all Republicans. He's not talking about all independents. He's talking about the idea of what makes America strong and what makes America great. And he's calling us back into focus on that. Um, And so it's critically important that he reminds the nation of why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing, and who we are. And this can be a lot of disagreement within those bounds, but there can't be any disagreement about the peaceful transition of power. Mm. There can't be any disagreement about, about whether insurrection is a good thing or a bad thing. There can't be any disagreement about whether or not you ought to threaten violence against the FBI or against the police, that's outside of the bounds. And I think that that one of the discussions that we have to have in this country is how we bring it back in. We can be passionate. Look, I'm from a big family. I got eight brothers and sisters. We don't all think alike. We have a lot of really tough discussions at the kitchen table, but you know what? At the end of it, we're still family and we figure out a way to live together in a peaceful way. And I think the president wants to speak to that issue tonight um, and call us back into uh, the, the the center of what it means 
um, to really be the great country that we all profess that we want to be. I mean, you, you've spoken about this yourself. You gave one of my favorite speeches about your decision to remove uh, four Confederate monuments when you were mayor of New Orleans. Racism and, and right-wing extremism have only gotten worse since then. Like, looking around the political landscape today, how do you think we heal some of these wounds, get back to that table together, and, and really keep a multiracial democracy alive? Yeah, well, I think that's one of the things the president wants to speak to. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't have arguments. It shouldn't mean that we shouldn't be passionate, but it does mean that we have to recommit ourselves to the notion that we all belong here um, and that we all have a voice. But we also have to set parameters and say that we're not in favor of violence. We're not in favor of autocracy. We're not in favor of the kinds of things that unfortunately we have started to see. Now, it's my personal opinion. I'm not speaking on behalf of the president here, but on my 30 years of experience growing up in the South, um, this is this is stuff that's been around a long time down here. Uh, it just got into a megaphone that's been bigger. And other folks have said, well, look, let's start saying it out loud. So if you go listen to the remnants of George Wallace or Bull Connor, you know, or other folks, this rhetoric, even David Duke, this rhetoric is very, very, very familiar. That's coming from a very small section of the country, which is really kind of starting to push themselves into what some folks used to think was mainstream stuff. And, and I think that you got to say, look, that's just out of bounds. Um, and that's not who we are. Um, I think Liz Cheney, um, you know, in, in a, uh, I can't think of a thing that I agree with her on, quite frankly, um, except that she believes, um, as do I, that there are some guardrails in democracy that once we get out of, we just can't have a country again. And so I think there are plenty of people that are much more conservative than me, much more conservative than the president, that would fall well within that boundary. But what we can't lose is a very simple idea that we come to the table of democracy as equals, that we have peaceful transitions of power, that people ought to have access to the polls, that we ought to be self-determining as a country. And that quite frankly, when we don't do that, we miss an incredible opportunity to do what the president says is big things, which is why I'm really excited about infrastructure, because I think it's the proof point. First of all, we're physically building bridges, but we're also, you know, spiritually in a way, finding a way to use infrastructure to 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 connect people by demonstrating that if you put down your ideology, you can actually literally build a big thing like connecting everybody to the Internet. And just think about this for a minute. If you've got a little kid sitting on the stoop in the lower ninth ward, or you got a, a little kid sitting on the on the, on the porch in the hollows of Kentucky, in Dog Patch, Kentucky, or you got somebody sitting up in a tribal community in Alaska, and they're little kids and they don't have access to to the internet, they're stuck. Mm. But if they have access to the internet and they have access to knowledge, which is the great leveler, you may be looking at the kid that's actually going to take us to Mars. You may be looking at the next doctor that's going to find the next great cure to think it unleashes a huge amount of potential. And if people have an easy way to get to and from, that's even better. And if public transportation is available in, in a clean energy way, all of a sudden the United States of America is looking at everybody else in the world in their rearview mirror. And we're not beholden to anybody and we're standing on our own two feet and we're producing jobs that make sense. Now, if we can get past the, the very, very difficult issue of race and we can get past this issue of white nationalism, extremism, the, there's really nothing that holds America back. We got to figure out how to do that. And we can do that within the parameters of the constitutional framework that, that we've all experienced in a long period of time, which is at risk right now, which is why the president says, we're at a moment of crisis. We're at a, we, it's an existential threat. 
And we have to make a choice in this country. It really isn't about Republican versus Democrat. It's about freedom versus autocracy. And freedom will always win. Mitch Landrew, thank you so much for uh, coming on Pod Save America. And uh, good luck fixing all those potholes. <laughs> all right, my brother. Fill the damn pothole. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye-bye. Are you needing a safe space to learn how you can get your mind right? Yes. Tune- well, Tommy, you should tune into Amani State of Mind, a weekly podcast hosted by psychiatrist and TV personality Dr. Amani Walker and co-host comedian Meg Scoop Thomas, two smart and successful women and mothers sharing their personal and professional experiences to help normalize conversations about mental health. This isn't your average mental health show. Each week, they break down what's happening in news, pop culture, and their very own experiences managing mental health. Together, you'll laugh, keep it real, and create a safe space where everyone can get help with their issues. Nothing's off the table. Dr. Imani Walker and Meg Scoop Thomas discuss everything from relationships with yourself, your spouse, your parents, to the realities of postpartum depression and anxiety. Don't forget to take a deep breath, find your calm, and get into Imani's state of mind with new episodes dropping every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. If you were in a horror movie... This would be the part where the used car you just bought doesn't start. But you're not in a horror movie. And you found your car on Carfax.com. With Carfax, you won't have to overpay for a used car because you'll know its value. Shop great deals at the all-new Carfax.com. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Okay, before we go, it is time for another round of Take Appreciator with our Chief Take Officer, Elijah Cohn. Elijah, I know that you have been just building up takes for a while now. Because we haven't we haven't done this in a little bit, and I know that you're just bursting at the seam with takes. Yes, I certainly am. Uh, our cop runneth <laughs> over with horrible takes, and uh, it's really hard to narrow it down. But I feel like we have a nice array of takes for you, for you gentlemen today. Oh, good, a good spread, good spread of takes, like 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 the like a like a crudite platter of takes. <laughs> Another idea for the merch department. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. A uh, take it? cup, a coffee mug that says my, my take cup runneth over <laughs> or, 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 the, or these uh, steamy hot takes inside. All kinds of options here. Yeah. Wow. All of our all of our suggestions today to other people in the Cricket Network are just coming through the pod since I'm too busy to send emails. <laughs> well, I guess we'll find out if the merch department listens, won't we? <laughs> yeah. Hey, if you guys are listening, store.cricket.com. I said it. Uh, you're welcome, Jordan. Okay. Okay, here we go. Let me. I'll explain for the audience who may not have heard how the game works. Uh, I'm going to share some takes with you both. The producers have seen these takes. John and Dan have not. John and Dan will react and then rate them on a scale of one to four politicos, with four being the worst. Are you guys ready? 
as I'll ever be. All right. So let's start with one that has been talked about a lot at Crooked this week. It's a quote tweet. The original tweet poses the question, when did the GOP become the party of jerks? That led to this take. If I had to pinpoint a moment that the GOP became a party of jerks, it's when Mitt Romney spent his entire campaign being accused of killing Big Bird, building binders full of women, torturing the family dog, et cetera, et cetera. Guys, who said it? Unfortunately, uh, fortunately, we know that um, Fox News contributor slash Twitter person, who I don't know where, where she came from, Bethany Mandel, tweeted it. And um, look, it, it really hits home for, uh, for, for me and Dan, having been on the 2012 campaign. <laughs> <laughs> I am so sorry. I'm so sorry that Barack Obama dared to run against Mitt Romney he should have just he should have just given up after his first term and let Mitt Romney win and the fact that he called him an an out of touch plutocrat is just unforgivable unforgivable the fact that he wanted to defund PBS the fact that <laughs> the fact he did he not put the family dog on the car <laughs> did that not happen i think that happened i think that happened Dan? <sighs> Look, I lo- as we all know, I respect Mitt Romney for doing everything he could to, to to save democracy right now from Donald Trump and voting to impeach the guy. That's great. Maybe he's like maybe he's learned and and grown as a person since he put his his dog on the car roof. <laughs> Look, I too give <laughs> Mitt Romney credit for doing the bare fucking minimum. Congratulations. Like that is it, it, and you know what? In a party where no one else would do the bare minimum, when you do, you can be a hero. Right. The profiles in courage are graded on a curve and you got one, Mitt Romney. But let's just take a just let's hop in the old time machine and go back to 2012. (laughs) All right. Let's talk about that campaign, because Mitt Romney was not the pro-democracy, moral conscious of the Republican Party back then. He is someone who basically got on his proverbial knees to beg Donald Trump for his endorsement begged him, went to Trump Tower to seek that endorsement. And when he got it, he celebrated. He viewed it as a way to win. When Rick Perry, the uh, recent Dancing with the Stars contestant, then Republican governor, got in the race and seemed as a real threat to Mitt Romney's attempt to beat a bunch of yahoos like Michelle Bachman, what did he do? He went far to the right on immigration and ran an immigration platform as right wing as Donald Trump's. His Solution to immigration was self-deportation. He wanted to cut Social Security and Medicare. He his he had campaign surrogates who made incredibly racist comments about Barack Obama. Newt Gingrich calling Barack Obama the food stamp president, which is about as subtle as fuck. I don't know what. So let's not pretend that he was running. He went this. all in on the Benghazi conspiracy. Yes, on the night after that, within like twelve hours of Americans dying in Benghazi, he held a press conference to try to use it as political ammunition to save his failing campaign. In that first debate where he did oh so fucking well, he lied his ass off the entire time. And Barack Obama's <laughs> failure was that he did not respond to those lies aggressively. He was actually blown away that a human being who claimed to be such an honest, straightforward Boy Scout would just lie to the nation that much. So let's not pretend that anything was out of bounds. Barack Obama's beating Mitt Romney did not pave the way for Trumpism. The sort of campaign Mitt Romney ran made it easier for Donald Trump to have the nomination four years later. So I'm sorry. 
Stop blaming Barack Obama for Donald Trump. It's your fault, Republicans. You did this. Yep. Yep. 500 I, I, fucking politicos. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I just want I want to say I genuinely admire Mitt Romney for what he's done the last several years. I don't even think it was that I think he I he showed genuine political courage over these last few years and also have zero regrets about the campaign we ran against him in 2012. Zero. A million politicos. Same with Dam. All the politicos. How dare we attack him for wanting to cut taxes for the rich by raising them on the middle class, which was his plan. I mean, <sighs> powerful stuff, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell him to murder Big Bird. He just wanted to do it on his own. <laughs> like, this isn't the point, but also just a little cherry on top of this take is that she said if I had to pinpoint a moment and then list like five moments. That's just a little extra syntax thing that drives me crazy about that take. If we, as if we needed anything else. <sighs> we didn't tell him to, to 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 sing "Who Let the Dogs Out" like that, and then put one on the roof of his car. We didn't. We <laughs> didn't tell him to do that. I will say after that, and I want to thank Elijah for giving me this opportunity. I feel <laughs> exhausted, but unburdened. <laughs> Good. This is going to go viral. Elijah's thinking. Elijah's now doing his. Uh, he's he's not only take appreciator here. He's also Elijah, uh, social video master, and he's yeah. thinking about how to clip this and 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 send this yeah. send this into the internet. Yeah. Look look for this clip on Twitter with Bethany Mandel quote tweeted. Okay. <laughs> well, Dan, let's see. I'm glad you're feeling better, but I'm going to pull you back down with uh, this next one. Um, so this is one that I actually have been bursting at the seams at. I've been sitting on it for a while. I'm glad I haven't exposed it in a public channel on Slack. It's a week or two old. It's from the Wall Street Journal. It's a piece titled, But Her Emails, A Defense of Whataboutism. So, oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> this piece is obviously about the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. Here's a quote from it. Hillary Clinton's treatment of the emails and server were wrong, even if they didn't constitute a crime. Mr. Trump's removal of possibly classified information might be wrong too. Until Mr. Garland fully and specifically answers the hard questions about what appears to be unequal application of rules and practices, what about her emails will be a pertinent question. Guys, the author really puts this over the top. Who wrote it? Huh. This is in the Wall Street Journal? Yes. It's a contributor. Uh, I, I don't think uh, this person is a regular. Uh, Jim Comey? It's not Jim Comey. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was going to say Kim Strassel, but that doesn't... It uh, sounded very Matt Lewis-esque to me until you said the Wall Street Journal. Is it uh, Eli Lake? It's not. Would you like a hint? Mm. Yeah. Larry sure. David hates this person. Oh, the Dersh. <laughs> yes, it is Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> oh, yet another clam bake that the Dersh was disinvited to. Just walking around Martha's Vineyard with the scarlet letter on him. <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, I, I I don't even know where to go. Like, what what is that? What does he even mean by Merrick? Gar like, fucking Jim Comey decided to come out right before an election and give a fucking press conference about charges that were never brought. Uh, everything that Merrick Garland says ha said so far about Donald Trump has been a result of Donald Trump's own fucking idiocy. If Donald Trump had just shut the fuck up, <laughs> we probably wouldn't know about any of this right now. 1.3 politicos. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, Dersh is uh, he's uh, he's losing his fastball there. I don't know if we ever had one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can move on pretty quickly from that one. It just struck me so much the uh, what about her emails? The defense of what about her emails? The most annoying talking point. Well, when it turned out at the end that there was like uh, some like you know classified markings here and there that pr- probably shouldn't have been on there, and it was like a low classification. Meanwhile, Trump's got like the highest level classified documents that he stole and hid in his basement. Yeah, it's a little different. Yeah, it's a little and different. Hillary Clinton cooperated with the investigation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She and he is famously not cooperating, yes. and not <laughs> just not co- not cooperating is like pleading the fifth. Hiding the documents and lying to the FBI is obstruction. So it's a little different, yeah. a little different, but it's okay. It's okay. All right. So low Politico rating. We'll go to the last one. I have so many, but this will be the last one. I was for I was texting Andy for listeners. Like Andy is the lead producer on the show about all the takes, and she's normally like so polite and reserved. But something about this week's takes just brought out like this inner hater, and it was like a oh from Andy. Yeah. Oh, this has oh, got to wow. be big bad. Yeah. It, it takes a lot for Andy to get. To get that upset. I think it was just the the weight of all of them together. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this one is from the Washington Post. Uh, it was a heavily ratioed piece when it came out. It's titled uh, <laughs> "What Biden Could Gain from Pardoning Trump." Oh, <laughs> uh, here's a quote from it. It isn't clear that pardoning Trump would hurt Biden politically. On the contrary, making such a startling move could put the weary president back in the center of the political universe, scramble political alignments, and make his former rival, if he accepts the humbling offer, appear small and weak. Uh, He could have a unique opportunity to exploit his position to the country's advantage and his own. Guys, who wrote it? The ghost of Gerald Ford. A dumb person? I don't know. What kind of a is is? I just want to ask about this take because I haven't read this piece. Is the is is the conclusion here that like uh, there's some kind of a deal where Joe Biden pardons Donald Trump if Donald Trump agrees never to run for president again, or is it literally just he should pardon him and that's that? No, it's pure punditry. It'd be good for Biden. He can grab the spotlight. That's it. Okay, yeah. yeah it's not. It's just pure punditry. Well, Did this person yeah, garbage? Is this a, uh, some questions here. Is this a regular columnist for the Washington Post or a contributor? It appears that they're a regular columnist, but they have a legal column, not an opinion column. So that may make it a little harder. Is it Henry Olson? It's not, but I Henry Olson is the fourth, you know, that didn't make the cut here. He had He's had a lot of yeah. haters recently. I, I was going to guess before you said that, that it was part of Bill Clinton's polling duo of Mark Penn and Doug Schoen. So yeah, like I was thinking that too. I had that thought. A legal um, contributor. Le- Ginny uh, Thomas? No. You guys just want to hear it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just tell us. It's, his name is uh, Jason Willick. Not a, not a real him. person. That's a bust. <laughs> that is that is a, that is a fake it. thing. I As I said, heavily ratioed piece. But I'm going to say embrace debate. I actually kind of like this take. Just so you guys know, you're you're you like this take? Yeah, I like you that. I think it's a bold move. Trump. Yeah, and he can grab the narrative pack. I actually was like, well, maybe. I was at <laughs> I was at a I was at a wedding last weekend, and a friend of the pod came up to me and started talking about all this and. And she had asked what, what I was just thinking the conclusion might be, which is like, what if, what if Biden pardoned Trump if there's some agreement that Trump never runs for president again? And that agreement, I was like, hmm, <laughs> that's not that's not terrible. 
That's not terrible. That's that's this a bad is, idea. Joe Biden is not going to pardon idea. Trump. I'm not. Yeah, I know we don't do political predictions, but the amount of like. There's also no. There's no deal. There, that's not a real thing. I don't yeah, think you can make that kind of a deal. What is, yeah. is he going to sign a document? Well, yeah, we're going yeah, like, to trust his trust his signature on the document. Yeah. <laughs> you know, man of his word, Donald Trump, who would like yeah, no. take the deal, which you then can't undo, and then just file you know for what? president the next day. You know what that deal would have been? If fucking Republicans voted to impeach him after the insurrection. That's what it would have been. Then he wouldn't have been able to fucking run for president again if we had finally just convicted him. That was the whole purpose of the second impeachment. They didn't do that. So here we are. Now he gets indicted. Um, that's a dumb take. Uh, that, uh, that, gets, that gets one from me. <laughs> huh. uh, 2.8. Okay, I like that we're only the point system now. We're, we're we used to do halves. Now we're just now we're into point eight, point three. We work with a person in the Obama White House who told me once that they always made their predictions based on uh, they were an economist based on like very specific percentages because because they were an economist. Every if the more specific the prediction, the more people thought it was very serious. So like. <laughs> That's like a 30% chance is like kind of dismissed, but like 33.8% chance people seem like, oh, you must have done a math problem to get there. Was it Jason Furman? No, no. <laughs> yeah, it's been a bad day for the uh, the point system. I mean, the first one went to like millions or hundreds of politicos. And now we're- There was a big range. There was a big well, range. I think we're going to, I have two thoughts on this and then we get, we got to wrap up. One is I think we need to expand the uh, number of politicos available. Mm. Because they, well, I feel like we've run ourselves embracing in, inflation. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think we've run into what I call the Glenn Kessler problem, which is when you only have a scale of one to four, the big lie is treated the same as Joe Biden misstating the number of people who got vaccinated on a Thursday, right? So it's like four Pinocchios is the greatest lie ever told and sort of an egregious misstatement. So we might need, like, I didn't feel like the four playbooks was sufficient to give Bethany Mandel the credit. We need some be able to have some distinction there. So just that's one thing to put to think about for the future. And I also I also feel like there's been a lot of um, really horrible takes, but that are just they're pretty dumb. I feel like the person wasn't trying that hard first. Like feel like the person doesn't really know how to play take appreciator, you know, like doesn't understand that what they're supposed to do is to be as trollish as possible and trigger us in a way that Bethany Mandel clearly achieved. I think we I'm, I'm interested in some more of those takes. Maybe they're not there because maybe those people, maybe the maybe the trolls just uh, aren't on their game lately. But I'd like to hear some of those. And the other idea I want to just throw out there, because we're doing a lot of internal planning on this external platform today. (laughs) 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 Why not? Right. Is tweet, tweet us your own ideas for the, for the crooked staff. (laughs) So I listened to the, the rigorous fantasy football podcast. They do this great game called two jargons and a lie, where they do two like very specific, football jargons and they make one completely up and then the ho- the other two of us have to pick it. So we sh- there's a world oh, in which it's two real idea. takes and a fake take. <laughs> Dan, that we just came up with the game. Well, we, I just we don't literally need meetings. stole we did a we did a meeting at the end of a pod. Yeah, I I just I just control F control what is it? Control F control V. Is that what you speech writers C, do? Control C. <laughs> no, no, it's you find it's find and replace, oh, right? Oh. Like, <laughs> I JC just took an idea and just took football out and put politics in. And we're like, we look at look what we came up with. Look, as every great media company does. Yes. All right. Uh, we're gonna call it for today. That's our take appreciator. Thank you, Elijah, as always, for uh for giving us giving us your worst takes. Uh, thank you to Mitch Landrew for joining the pod. Everyone have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. 
Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producers are Olivia Martinez and Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer the show. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.